Hello and welcome to the History of the Cause, Episode 11, Church and State. Last time, we stopped with Constantine becoming the sole ruler of the Roman Empire, and Arius and the Orthodox Church reaching a theological stalemate. Just to make sure everyone is in the same page, Arius and Arianism we're talking about has nothing to do with the Nazis. They are spelled differently and have no relation whatsoever with each other. Now, with that out of the way, in our story, theological controversies will come up again and again until Egypt is conquered by the Arabs in the 7th century. So I think it would be helpful if we establish some common threads for all the controversies to see how they played a vital role in Egypt society as a whole, and not just in some elite religious circles. First, theological controversies are like a forest fire. Sure, you need an initial spark or a problematic theological idea, but there must be social, economic, and political factors to turn a faulty theological idea into a forest fire with a destructive impact. And if we continue to follow the forest fire metaphor, the more you let it grow, the more it will be more difficult to put down. And at some point, the only way you can combat it is to start a fire in the opposite direction. That is, at some point, church councils, diplomatic letters, and all communications between bishops are no longer effective, and the imperial government has to intervene and use things like censoring of bishops, confiscation of property, exile, and even violence. But as we will see, imperial force alone is usually not sufficient to settle theological controversies. Only when combined by theological legitimacy, then it is highly effective. The source of that legitimacy is traditionally a coalition of bishops, or a church councils for most of the Christian empire. But in Egypt, cultivating monastic support was just as important. Repeatedly in the history of the Copts, the bishops of Alexandria are able to defy the imperial theological agenda and not only survive, but achieve a theological victory. The most impressive of these victories will come shortly with St. Athanasius versus the Constantinian imperial family. The struggle had deep geopolitical roots that turned between a disagreement between an Alexandrian priest and his bishop into an empire-wide struggle that shaped the politics of the government for many years to come. The first root of the problem is the lack of a clear relationship between church and state. Starting with Constantine and going forward, the local bishops were not only a religious authority, but also a civil and a political one, which in itself is not a problem, as pagan emperors before Constantine have intermingled religion and state for a long time, and so did the local administrators, but the hierarchy and the, relation between, and the relationship between them was clear. So if Diocletian wanted to sack a problematic pagan priest, no one questions his authority to do so. But Constantine was so hesitant to condemn bishops and preferred that they are condemned by a church council instead. And in the same time, bishops pushed back when they felt local administrator interfered in church matters and were generally supported by Constantine. This was a new precedence that was being set. So questions like what happens if one council of bishops condemn the priest but another reinstate him? 
And who can remove bishops? And how can one go about doing so? Were unanswered and in flux. If we take the point of view of an average citizen of the empire, the new world Constantine was creating had huge implications. If your neighbor cheated you in a trade, or violated the contract, or even if you wanted to abuse your taxes, can you go to the bishop to resolve your disputes? What if that bishop held different beliefs than you? What if your neighbor was a religious man, but you're not? The answers to these questions were being decided upon during the 4th century. But at this point in our history, generally speaking, the church hierarchy served as an informal means of governing and capable administrators worked with them to maintain the peace. But with time, they would become more and more intertwined. The second of these issues is that the great persecution especially targeted church leadership, and many of the bishops were absent, either because they went into hiding or they were imprisoned or killed. As a result, the local church priests and deacons became the de facto leaders of their community, and their congregations looked at them for guidance and as the final word in theological matters. Also, the schism started by Miletus that we discussed in episode 9 meant that the authority of the Bishop of Alexandria was challenged, not only by the local priest, but by a rival church. But perhaps the biggest issue that led to the Arian controversy was the lack of a clear hierarchy among the different bishops. The bishops of Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch were always in a leading position due to the political and cultural importance of their cities. Next came Carthage, Nicomedia, and Caesarea. And of course, Jerusalem was important due to its symbolic history. In a few years of our narrative, the Bishop of Const- Constantinople would also play a major role. But the relationship at this point was informal and not based on theological solid ground, with little formal rules to govern their interactions, or whose theological judgment comes first. In the upcoming struggle, it wasn't just about theology, but more or less what is the hierarchy of the bishops of the empire. The struggle began when Constantine decided to intervene and solve the Aryan problem by getting everyone in the same room and have them agree on what should be the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Trinity. In other words, hold a universal church council. Constantine was moved to action by the bishop of Nicomedia, Eusebius. Arius and Eusebius had developed a relationship, and as we will see, without Eusebius, Arianism would have died quietly. Eusebius of Nicomedia was an influential bishop and was part of the palace governing machinery and in Constantine's circle. He eventually became one of Arius' most ardent supporters. His position in the palace did not give him any additional ideological weight as far as the other bishops of the empire were concerned, but he was ambitious and very adept at palace intrigue, so generally speaking, his theological ideas ended up shaping imperial policy. As a minor side note, Eusebius of Nicomedia is a different person than Eusebius of Caesarea, the famous church historian and one of the major historical sources for this period. Both of them supported Arius and were close to Constantine and the imperial family, but Eusebius of Caesarea was more or less a passive supporter of Arius. Anyway, through the influence of Eusebius of Nicomedia, Constantine sent a friendly letter addressed to both Pope Alexander 
and Arius, urging them to solve their dispute in peacefully in a Christian manner. Despite the tone of the letter, Constantine clearly either wasn't interested in the theology or was simply beyond him. He was a soldier emperor raised by an innkeeper daughter and a soldier father, not a Greek philosopher or a Christian theologian. His motivation was simply to keep the peace and govern efficiently. Regardless, the letter had no effect, which prompted Constantine to call the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, just a year after his victory over Licinius and 20 years after his father's death in Britain and starting his journey as an emperor. The council was originally planned for Ancyra, but Constantine wanted to attend, so it moved closer to Nicaea. Constantine's objective was simple, peace and unity in the church for the prosperity of the state. He probably envisioned the bishop coming together and negotiating some sort of a compromise where everyone is happy. Someone should have probably told him that theologians don't compromise, especially Coptic ones. In the minds of the Coptic bishops and clergy attending, it was a matter of the right face or the wrong one not a political issue to be negotiated over to make everyone happy. This dogma of unyielding theology would shape the history of the Copts in an unmistakable manner. It will become clearer and more influential as we move along in our narrative, especially in a century from now with the events of the Council of Chalcedon. The Council of Nicaea started with a moving speech from Constantine, where he started by preaching unity and ended up by burning the petition addressed to him by the various bishops who accused each other of misconduct. Then, 18 bishops who supported Arian presented a faith statement, or a creed, but it caused an uproar among the 300 or so other bishops in attendance, and it was torn up. Next, Eusebius of Caesarea presented a compromise creed, but the anti-Arian party, led by Bob Alexander, and his protege and deacon Asenasius would not compromise and introduced very specific terminology that is free of all Arian thought. The words introduced were that the Son, Jesus Christ, was, quote, begotten, not created, of the same substance of the Father. After the introduction of that terminology, the bishops were in four camps. Extreme Arians, led by Arius himself and Eusebius of Nicomedia, moderate Arians, led by Eusebius of Caesarea, moderate anti-Arians, led by the bishop Osias of Cordova in modern-day Spain, who probably presided over the council, and the extreme anti-Arian position, led by the Coptic bull Alexander. Those names will be with us for a while, as the Council of Nicaea was just the first battle in a long war. The anti-Aryan side eventually won the day in Nicaea and did not give even an inch in theological ground. But nonetheless, Constantine had to intervene and pressure many of the Aryan bishops to sign it, as well as offer his own explanation of the words of the same substance to appease some of the Aryan bishops. By the end of the day, all 318 bishops in the Council of Nicaea agreed to the creed, except three of them who were promptly exiled and removed from their see by Constantine. And it does seem the rest of the Aryan bishops were not persuaded by the theological argument, but rather decided to retreat and live for to fight another day. 
Like I said earlier, to eliminate a popular heretical sort, you needed theological legitimacy and imperial enforcement. And as they couldn't get the theological legitimacy, they shifted the battle to imperial policy. In addition to deciding on the creative phase, or the Nicene Creed, as it will come to be known, the council published several canons dealing with the thorny issues of the time. The canon in interest for the Egyptian church and the Copts are the assigning of Easter date calculation for the universal church to the Bishop of Alexandria, as well as several canons to try and solve the problem of the rival church of Egypt established by Miletus. And unlike the theological matters where Pope Alexander would not compromise, he gave away lots of ground to reconcile Miletus and his bishop back to the Alexandrian church. The council effectively allowed Miletus to keep his position as a bishop, as well as allowed the clergy and bishops ordained by him to be restored to their position with the consent of the bishop of Alexandria, who still kept the exclusive future right to ordain bishops in the, in the province of Egypt. While in theory this was supposed to solve the problem, it essentially kept a small coalition of clergy in Egypt who did not consider themselves to be under the Bishop of Alexandria and repeatedly acted against them, especially when St. Asenasius comes into our narrative. And with that, the council wrapped its business and everybody returned to their homes, hoping that the Aryan controversy have ended and the peace of the church restored was another impressive achievement for Constantine. If it was only that easy. Now, it's time to formally introduce San Asenasius. San Asenasius was probably born in the late 290s AD, and grew up in the shadow of the Great Persecution. By the Edict of Milan at 312 AD, and the subsequent toleration of Christianity, Asenasius was a young teenager, who caught the attention of Pope Alexander and was probably enrolled in the theological school of Alexandria. Supposedly, Pope Alexander was watching the seashore of Alexandria from his window when he saw a group of teenagers playing and reenacting the act of baptism. Intrigued by the sight, he summoned them, and after talking with them, he recognized that the baptism performed by one of them were valid. The boy who performed the baptism was an Asenasius, who was kept as part of Bob Alexander's court and quickly rose through the ranks and became his secretary and protégé. By the time of the Council of Nicaea, Bob Alexander was getting older and it became increasingly clear that San Asenasius was not only his heir but the major influence on the anti-Aryan position of the Alexandrian church. In other words, for the Aryan bishops, St. Asenasius' elevation to the Patriarchy of Alexandria would be a major loss, as it would effect effectively guarantee that a major cultural and religious center of the empire would be anti-Aryan. The loss came about three years after the Council of Nicaea, in 328 AD, where Pope Alexander passed away and St. Asenasius took the helm. In those three years, the Aryan bishops, led by Eusebius, we're working hard on two fronts. The first is to ordain new bishops who share their view in vacancies or to, to replace bishops who are removed for various political and moral reasons by other Aryan bishops. The second was to build a communication network among the Miletian dissenting clergy in Egypt 
as a resistant movement to the Coptic bishop. So shortly before Alexander this in January 328 AD, a local council was assembled in Nicomedia, the seat of Constantine court at this point, as this was before Constantinople was established, in the pretext of reintegrating the Miletian bishops. And since neither Pope Alexander or San Athanasius were present, the council made minor moves toward reintegrating the Miletian bishop to go along with its pre-stated public goal. But, perhaps more importantly, executed a brilliant political move by readmitting Arius and those who supported him in a nice-sounding slogan of preserving unity. And because Constantine was present due to the council location and endorsed its decisions, it had an added weight, and the elderly Bob Alexander could not just ignore it as a local affair. So, he wrote a letter to Constantine, explaining why he cannot and would not admit Arius to the church, but he's happy to accept the Miletian bishops back, as already decided in the Council of Nicaea. He gave the letter to St. Athanasius to take to Constantine. But in April 328 AD, Bob Alexander passed away, and St. Athanasius went back to Alexandria to the assembly of 54 bishops to decide on a transition. In the Coptic sources, the transition was smooth and easy. St. Athanasius hesitated on taking the responsibility and the honor, but the people and the clergy gathered and demanded that he becomes the patriarch. But in the non-Coptic sources, the bishops assembled included Miletian bishops, who would not accept St. Athanasius as a bishop. Things were at a stalemate for a couple of months, until a group of bishops who supported Bob Alexander took St. Athanasius, maybe against his wish, and unilaterally consecrated him as a bishop without the approval of the Miletian bishop present. In response, the Miletian bishops consecrated their own patriarch. And now we see the beginning of St. Athanasius, who was against the world. Since day one of his patriarchy, he faced enemies on all fronts. Inside Egypt was the Miletian clergy, and outside Egypt was an increasingly influential coalition of Aryan bishops. And if that wasn't enough, in a bit he would have the imperial government with all its mites coming after him. Now, I would like to end this week with a small background on the sources for the next part of our story, as it is a bit controversial to say the least. San Athanasius was a prolific writer and we can almost create a narrative solely based on what he wrote and what survived of it. Not only his work survived, but since his ideas and theological thought eventually would win the day, he became a Christian and a national hero after his death. And naturally, we get plenty of other sources confirming what he wrote. You would think that the availability of St. Athanasius writing would make things easy. But it did make the task of creating a narrative a little bit hard, since he was such a polarizing figure that even in his own time, similar to modern political controversies, it was very hard to get to the bottom of things and to separate allegations from facts. So, for the modern historians, the choice is either to take the writing of St. Athanasius as the most authentic of the sources and a first-hand account of what happened, or do not treat his writing as authentic material and embark on a detective-style history-telling. 
So we get a range from Edward Gibbon calling him, quote, a superiority of character and abilities which would have qualified him far better than the degenerate sons of Constantine for the government of a great monarchy, to another historian, Edward Schwartz, who wrote that Athanasius was a politician through and through, who could not narrate the facts. For the record, Edward Gibbon was known for his six-volume anti-Christian narrative of the Roman history. So his praise for St. Athanasius is despite his general dislike of Christianity. And Edward Schwartz have published seven studies just on the history of St. Athanasius. So what does a podcaster trying to give a narration as close to the truth as possible do? Well, there's no easy answers. Sometimes I'll present both sides as is. Sometimes I'll present what I think most likely have happened. Generally speaking so, I lean on the side of accepting what St. Athanasius wrote as authentic and factual. And with that disclaimer, I will end this week's episode. Next week, St. Athanasius will begin his time as the Bishop of Alexandria and earn the name Athanasius Contramundum, i.e. Athanasius who is against the world. A badge of honor as far as the cause are concerned. Farewell and until next week. Thank you.